Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Brandon Lamar is an author, mentor, and community activist that is running a grassroots campaign for the 3rd District of the Pasadena City Council. His service to others started at an early age and was guided by the strong faith of his family, particularly that of his late grandmother. Brandon is the California Director at Youth Advocate Programs and has previously held positions with organizations like the Hollywood Police Activity League and the Los Angeles Conservation Corps. He's been involved in the local community and political groups as a board member of Pasadenians Organizing for Progress and the Pasadena NAACP. He is also a member of Leadership Pasadena and Black Los Angeles Young Democrats. Brandon is currently the chair of the city's Human Relations Commission, which was created to improve our relationship with city government and to assist people and groups in promoting goodwill, things that Brandon is perfectly suited for. As a side note, during this great conversation, we briefly talked about the Human Relations Commission's recent work on the Mills Alley marker in Old Pasadena. The current plaque states that a laundry owned by a Chinese settler was destroyed by fire in 1885. But the history is much more complicated. On November 6, 1885, a mob of about 100 people burned down the businesses of several Chinese immigrants as a response to rising hostility toward a group of people that simply came to Pasadena for a better life. What followed was an exodus of roughly 60 to 100 Chinese Americans who had to decide between fleeing Pasadena or potentially being lynched. The city would go on to pass a resolution barring those of Chinese descent from living in prominent parts of Pasadena, forcing those who stayed into segregated parts of the city. It is an important incident in our early history that shows the brutality of intolerance. But back to Brandon. Because of his love for Pasadena and a strong desire to address some of the most challenging issues we face, such as affordable housing, public safety at a time when we have seen high-profile incidents of violence, and economic development, Brandon decided to run for city council. In a far-reaching conversation, we talk about his background, running for office, and his vision for one Pasadena. So, without further delay, my conversation with Brandon Lamar. Brandon, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, James, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a community leader and have had a tremendously varied career, and you're only 29 years old. Your involvement in community service started at a very early age. So to begin our conversation, can you share more about your experience as you were born in Los Angeles amidst the 1992 riots, but grew up in the Pasadena area? So yeah, I was I was born at Drew King Hospital in 1992, right literally in the middle of the Rodney King riots. And my godmother actually went down there to get me from the hospital. Um, she actually adopted me. And so I've been with her ever since. So there my my parents are uh, and my father and my literally my parents been with them ever since. But that's how my journey started in nineteen ninety-two. And then raised in Pasadena, raised around the church. My grandparents were pastors in Pasadena. So the bulk of my life has been in faith. But my grandmother was very involved in Pasadena as well, being a pastor, doing funerals, 
speaking on the steps of City Hall, very engaged in community problems, but also community solutions as well. And so um, that's like the heart of where I get it from. But yeah, it started there. And then when I became a teenager, I started getting more involved in city stuff. And so I was an ambassador with the ambassador program. And I say this all the time. It's so funny that when I started off with the ambassadors, we were making like maybe $25 to $35 per event when now they're getting a, a minimum wage, living wages now <laughs> per hour. And so it's like a little bit of jealousy there. But yeah, I started uh, off with the ambassadors program and then went to, you know, be a part of youth council and then started off with some other programs and assisting other programs like the neighbor outreach worker program, which I was a lead outreach worker for them. And then I did some work with day one as assisting and being one of the voices for their team prevention of alcohol and drugs. List goes on and on. So I've had some some work start at a young age in regards to community engagement. Well, you attended John Muir, but would go on to graduate from Opportunities for Learning Charter High School. And you studied criminal justice and criminal behavior at Azusa Pacific. What attracted you to criminal and social justice? That's a good question. Honestly, it was, you know, seeing a grown ups in our justice system. So when I worked for neighborhood outreach workers program as a lead outreach worker, it's basically like another word for a mentor. And so we had kids who had court cases and we had families who we had to represent in court and advocate for them in court. And it started to see in my eyes, I started to see that you know, a lot of our families and a lot of our young people who come from urban communities sometimes do not know how to advocate for themselves. And then also they don't have good advocates that comes from the court, whether it's a defense attorney or a court appointed attorney for them. Um, they just don't know. They just don't advocate enough for them. And so it's, you know, the reason why I really got into criminal justice is so that I can advocate uh, effectively for um, my community and for the people that I serve, for the kids that I mentor. And so that was really like the bulk of my uh, reasoning for that. And also when I started, I didn't know exactly what field I wanted to go into. So, I mean, I was halfway into probation and halfway into finding something in the police department and halfway into community engagement. And so it was really me finding a step to actually see what I really wanted to do as like a a lifetime goal. Well, you mentioned mentoring and it's really, it seems like mentoring is very important to you. You know, you've participated in mentoring and teen programs uh, because I think you've stated that it gives fathers to those that don't have fathers in their lives and brothers to kids that are isolated. Who were your early mentors or influences and what did these experiences teach you? I think one of the beautiful things is that I grew up first off in a in a church. So like I stated before, my grandparents were pastors. My mother is very involved in our church. Um, and so I had a lot of mentors, but first I start at home always. My father and my, my mother, my parents were my, my first influencers in my life. My father is the one who taught me to get up every single day and do what I had to do to make life work for me. So that's the, the first sign of, you know, influence that I saw was the work that he did getting up. Him and my mother got up very early, five and six o'clock in the morning, probably earlier than that. And so just to work and and do stuff that they had to do for their family. So that was the first part of influences that I've seen. Um, And then my grandmother as well. Uh, My grandmother played a very heavy part for me 
when it comes to uh, community work, to seeing how she was involved. And uh, in my early years, mostly only people really knew me because I always went places with my grandmother. So when they saw her, they saw me. And so it was like putting, you know, one plus one together. And so uh, she she was one of the biggest influences that, you know, I have to give credit to. She actually passed away uh, June of this year. And so, you know, my life work is still dedicated and in homage to her. And so, uh, but like I said, growing up in church as well, I had, you know, men also that I looked up to besides my father and having a strong village of men and strong village of mentors. Um, and then when I started off in community work as a kid as well, I had mentors like um, Deputy Sam Estrada, who's now a retired Altadena Sheriff's man. And he did the Explorers program that I was a part of in Altadena. And so he was one of my young my mentor as a young age growing up and then my mentors play people who play a part in my life now and you know the last maybe 10 years have been people like gary moody who was the former naacp president horace warmly who is uh formerly deputy director or formerly director for park and recreations for city of pasadena and pastor john DeCure, who was the executive pastor for victory bible church so these people have literally played a part in my life and shaping and and giving advice and and mentorship and wisdom on things to do thing all things also not to do so you know mentorship is very important to me before we dive into running for city council i would be remiss if i didn't mention that you are the current chair of Pasadena's Human Relations Commission, and um, in your and we're recording this on December eighth. This will come out in a couple of weeks, but we're recording this on December eighth. And last night, the commission had a meeting to discuss the the Mills uh, plaque, and so I kind of want to get your opinion on kind of the adjusted language that the commission is considering in recognition of the event from eighteen eighty five and the subsequent city hall actions to uh, remove Chinese citizens from prominent areas in, in Pasadena. So I kind of want to get your opinion on what you think is the issue and and how why is it an important, important part of our city's history? Right. I think um, the truth of the matter is we have to have transparency. Transparency and accountability when the city have done something wrong and we know we did something wrong and we have to correct it, uh, but we have to correct it the right way. And so language is everything. Being a person who is actually... African-American, but also uh, Filipino, um, you know, it fits right into to my heritage as well. And so no matter what it is, we should do what we have to do to make it right and to fix things for all of our community. This is not anything further from injustice that is happening in the past, but I call it we have to find some ways to to correct the wrongs that we've done. And this is human rights, you know, and we and all of our people in Pasadena who live here, whether they were born here or not, they have to feel comfortable with living here. And they are uh, they're paying rent and mortgages and bills just like everyone else. And so they're law abiding citizens just like everybody else. And so they should be able to have that right to be where they are. And like I said before, we just have to do our part to fix the wrong that previous I guess leaders did. And so that's the work that we continue to do. Just like a few weeks ago, we, we wrote a letter to city council to, um, in support of PEPEC with actually allowing undocumented voters 
or undocumented citizens in Pasadena to actually vote for PUSD uh, school board members. And so that's something else that we believe. You know, we believe that if your kids actually attend school and they're going to school here, whether their parents are documented or not documented, that they should have a voice in their, their kids' education. And so at the end of the day, I think borderline, it comes to human rights. And uh, when it comes to the Mills Place plaque, we just have to do what we have to do to correct and make sure that all of our citizens in Pasadena actually feel safe to be here. I appreciate the work that your commission is doing. I recently finished a book on the U.S. Civil War. And I think the historian that uh, that wrote the book mentioned that history is ruthless. And I thought that was a good way of describing it. And that what we need is more history, right. not less of it. Right. The current plaque has a very narrow focus. And by incorporating more of the actual history, you know, we're giving people a better education of what yeah. you know the legacy of our city is. And I mean, at the end of the day, too, uh, something that I always think about in the back of my head is uh, Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so we have to look at that as, you know, this is not just an African-American situation. It's not just a black situation. It's not just a Latino situation. This is happening in America across the board of injustice that are, that is happening to different groups of people. And so um, at the end of the day, we have to come together as one Pasadena. I stated all the time. We have to stop. Pasadena has to stop dividing itself from Northwest Pasadena, East Pasadena, South Pasadena. And we have to include ourselves as one Pasadena. And I think when we start actually looking at the lens at looking at the lens of Pasadena as one Pasadena, then I think we can actually go into better support for our city, better programs for our city, um, a better outlook on our city. But if we keep dividing our city into geographical areas, then we'll keep looking at it as those areas. And so, yeah, we, we, we definitely have to do a better job. In October, you announced that you would run for city council for District 3 against incumbent John Kennedy, uh, who is also an active member of the community. Why did you decide to run for city council at this complicated and somewhat divisive time? I think that's an amazing question um, that I've been asked a lot of times. And the real reason why I decided to run is because I feel like it was no better time to do it than now. I feel like with leadership changing around our country and around our, our sister cities around us, that it's it's time for uh, leadership to change as well. I mean, we see we're even seeing a leadership change in our executive staff from the city. How many people are retiring or have been retired? Um, or have retired. And so I feel like, you know, it's time for us to have new perspectives, new ideas, but then also my motto and my motive um, is really community first. And I feel like there's a lot of times that situations happens or problems we see in our community, they happen. And we ask the community for their solutions. We ask the community, uh, what do you think we should do? And when the community actually gives those answers, the city does the opposite of what the community says they actually want to see. And so I want to bring the voice back to the community. I want to bring accountability back to the community. I want to bring transparency back to the community because I think that's where that's how we heal and that's how we grow together. But then not only that, I want to show other millennials and young people that you too can run as well. 
You don't have to be old and retired to run. You don't have to have your own business and and be an entrepreneur and do that to run. That you can definitely work your own nine to five job and everything else that you do in life and you can still be effective inside of your own community. And so it's it's really assisting and giving uh, inspiration, motivation to other generations that say, hey, look, you can do it, too. And I honestly believe that we have a lot of people in our community, in our in our city that does want to run and does want to uh, be in these positions and have amazing ideas to do and to help change our city and help our city move forward. But sometimes, you know, when you look at it, it, it sometimes it gets intimidating. It can be intimidating. Can you raise enough money? Can you be around the right people? Can you say the right things? Can you do the right things? And so there's a lot of things that play a part in it. But uh, ultimately, it's just, hey, you can you can do it, too. This is a position that you can take, too, and you can fight for, too. Currently, Pasadena does not have a cap on campaign contributions. Mm-hmm. And but you've expressed that you've that you're supportive of a cap of four thousand nine hundred dollars per person. Right. Is that correct? Right. Uh, why do you think that that's important to have that cap? I think a cap is important, period, because um, it helps grassroots campaigns like mine actually have a chance to run. Yes, you're going to have to get out there and get to know people. Yes, you're going to have to meet, go talk to old family and friends that you haven't talked to in years to help raise these funds. But at the end of the day, I know a lot of community members don't really know how much work it takes to do a campaign. Also, the funds that it takes to do a campaign. But I think with campaign limits, it allows people, like I said before, who have full time jobs to to do these campaigns, to do grassroots campaigns that even though if we move the limit to a cap of forty nine hundred dollars that, you know, you can still get five, you can still give 10, you can still get 15. And it's really to help uh, advance the, the campaign that you support. But it's also how people who are running get the word out and their voice out about why they're running. And I think that's very important. But ultimately, I believe in campaign limits because, you know, it just gives everybody a chance and it gives everybody a seat at the table to get a piece of the pie to to have a fair chance at running as well. And so, you know, other cities have have limits of one hundred and fifty dollars per person that I've seen and, and $250 per person, $400 per person, right? So us capping it at 4,900, it's not really doing too much, but I do think we have to cap it at something at some point. I don't think unlimited campaign dollars is is definitely needed for the work that we, we want to see in Pasadena. Well, I think it comes on the heels of last year's mayoral campaign, which I think the candidates raised, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And unless you have access to donors, I mean, you cannot compete in that race. You cannot. And it's unfortunate, even if you have a coalition that's supportive, even if you have a message that really is ref- is a reflection of the community and is a positive message for the community, if you don't have the funds to support your campaign, it, you won't get off the ground. Also, it's easier for incumbents to, to raise money because people already see their faces. They already know them. They already know who they are, for the most part, know what they're about. So it's pretty much easier for them to, to run the race, right? Or people who've already been in office, it's easier for that to happen. But also, it has to be something for people who think that their ideas are for now to be able to sit at that table as well. 
and have that same chance at, at running and also as as uh, in raising funds as well. You've been very outspoken about policing in our city, and I've stated that you support effective ways to lower crime. What does that look like and how can you be a leader on this issue? Ultimately, to lower crime, I think, number one, we have to start off with conversations. We have to have hard conversations, especially to lower crime in in high crime areas. And I think ultimately what we have to do is first we have to understand that healing has to take place between our police department and our communities. That there's a lot of community, a lot of community members and a lot of communities in Pasadena who ultimately do not trust our police department. And so I think, number one, we have to build that trust between our police department again. And building trust means community engagement. Uh, and here's what I mean by community engagement. I mean, actually engaging in the community and not only when a crime is happening or when a crime has happened, but you see somebody or you see something, then you get out your cars and you talk to them and you say, hey, how you doing? How's your day going? OK, I just was checking on you, making sure everything's all right. Those type of conversation actually helps our community. And I know our, our our police officers are not waiters and I know they're not servers, but I also believe that our uh, our police department has to have a sense of com- customer service. And so that's really how I think, first of all, we have to build back that trust. And as I stated before, one of my mentors was uh, Deputy Sam Estrada. I remember the first contact I had with Deputy Sam Estrada is we were uh, riding dirt bikes or some kind of like moped bikes in Altadena at that time. And we got a call. One of the neighbors called and say, hey, you know, there's a noise disturbance, this and that, the other. He pulled up. And he actually got out of his car. We were scared. We we're kids. So we were scared. Police is here. You know, anytime you come or anytime you're riding with a family, it was always, oh, sit back. The police is behind us or don't move. The police is behind us. So the police is here now. Our parents is inside the house and we out here by ourselves. And he was like, hey, man, how, what y'all doing out here? And it's like, we just riding. That's it. Like not bothering nobody. We just riding. He was like, oh, let me see. And he actually got on the bike and actually rode it around. And I know he's not supposed to do that, but I, so I'm glad he's retired. Now I can actually tell the story. So I know he's not supposed to do that, but that was community engagement. That was making us feel comfortable that, you know, he was here, but he was also here to protect us and serve us as well as not only the people who called him in over to us. And so it's really going over and beyond to build that trust and that connection. Some of the other things that I think we have to do is we have to do more community conversations with law enforcement. And here's what I mean by that. Not just law enforcement that that are in the chief position and deputy chief position and commander positions. We need to have these conversations with people that are patrolling our neighborhoods that we are seeing every day and they're seeing us every day. Because when we build that trust, then we can actually have those conversations of what type of crimes is happening, how they're happening. And people would actually feel comfortable, more comfortable would actually call in the police when a crime is actually occurring. Another example that I can give that just happened recently. I was driving down my neighborhood and there was literally six guys fighting in the middle of the street. I called it in. Yes, I did. I'm not afraid to call the police when something is happening. So I called it in saying, hey, this is what's happening. The operator said, do they have weapons? No, they don't have weapons. They're just fighting in the middle of the street. Can you send somebody? I sat there. Something told me to pull over and sit there. I sat there six minutes, no police car, no interference, no nothing. Some of the neighbors actually came outside and started to break up the fight. And so I got out of my car and I broke it up with them. And everybody went out their way, went about their ways. I got back in my car, called them back and say, never mind. It's okay. Everybody's gone now. 
And so, you know, it's stuff like that, that we see that when when it is happening and we see something happening and we call the police and the response is not what it is. I know police officers are busy and they have a hundred calls that they are attending to, maybe thousand calls that they're attending to a day. But we have to do something to build back our trust with our community. And so I think that's the first part of uh, lowering crime. But I think we also have to have programs, preventive programs for our young people prevention works. We cannot always intervene and we cannot always wait till something happens in order for us to intervene, but we have to tackle the problem before it happens. And that goes into prevention. So actually having preventive methods for our young people and prevention programs that, that don't just last three to five years, but they're actually programs that have longevity that are for our kids and for our, our, our community. Because I believe it starts at a young age. If we can scope them and we can train them and we can mold them at a young age, then I think they'll be better citizens as adults. So I think we really have to start at, at a young age to really tackle prevention work in our city. This kind of question goes back to something that you shared earlier, which is your idea of a, a one Pasadena where we don't divide ourselves by our neighborhoods. How do we educate our city that even if we don't live in the areas that are affected by crime, that these victims are still our neighbors and it's our, that our shared responsibility to help? Now, that's a very broad question, but I'm trying to get a sense of what you think we should be doing so that someone that is in West Pasadena is connected to the shooting that is in Northwest Pasadena or vice versa. How do we kind of bridge some of those differences? Well, I think it goes into the education uh, uh, that the city puts out and not only the information that the city puts out, but it also goes into the information that our media puts out. Right. Because media is everything and media is how we get the news. Media is how we understand everything is how we find out about everything. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that in districts one and three, those are, those are actually our lowest crime districts in the entire city. And those are the the, the districts that people know as Northwest Pasadena. Right. And so we're our lowest crime districts. But, you know, it seems like every time something happens in Northwest Pasadena, the news is there and is putting out information. But they don't do that same stuff when it's crime happening in South Pasadena, it's crime happening east side of Pasadena. And so I think that what we have to do is we have to do a better job is in, in distributing information and putting out information. And and I think that's it goes back to educating your neighbors as well. One of the beautiful things about being on a commission is that you get to meet people from different districts. And that's the amazing part that I, that's one of the best things that I've learned uh, and loved about being a commissioner is that I have other commissioners that sit on my commission that are from different, different, different districts. And we see different things. We grew up seeing different things. We've interacted with officers and in, in different departments in our city, different ways. Um, and there's some things that I've seen that other commissioners have never seen in their life. And there's some opportunities that I've had and I brought them over to, hey, come show, come over here to La Pernodesco Park. Come over here to Jackie Robinson uh, Park. Come over here to this event. Come over here to that. And they actually show up because they trust me. But some of them before that time would have never came. Or wouldn't even have thought about it or or knew about different events that are happening. And so I think that we have to do a better, like I said, a better job with distributing information um, and, and the news that we put out there. But we also have to do a better job at outreaching that when one when one group of the city is doing something that we all support it and we're all there to try to find ways to support and be there and connect. 
in, in areas that they feel are quote unquote safe and even areas that they feel are quote unquote unsafe. And even and, and my thing is that even the areas that people think are not safe, you know, are probably more safer than the areas that you think are really safe. And so, um, I mean, ultimately, we just have to watch the, the stuff that we put out there. Word of mouth is huge. And the stuff that we say and the stuff that we post can be either a blessing or can be a curse to different areas. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, affordable housing is an issue that's not just in Pasadena, but throughout the San Gabriel Valley. And you've been very vocal on this issue. How do you believe the city should address housing and what tools should we be exploring to provide homes to more people in need? When I look at this, the first question I ask myself and the first question I ask everyone else is, do you want people to continue to leave Pasadena or do you want people to stay in Pasadena? And that's the first question I think that we all have to ask ourselves. Is, is this a city that we want people to stay in and, and call home and call this is where you're from and, and you live here? Or this is a place where you say, hey, we want everybody to move. Uh, we want people who cannot afford to live here to move and we don't want y'all here. And, and that's so that's the first question. And then something that I think about as well is that, and I've said this plenty of times that I think it's a shame that you can be born here raised here and still not afford to live here. And so I think, number one, it goes to affordable housing. Um, we have to have some sort of rent control in Pasadena. I read something in the newspaper maybe a couple of weeks ago that said by the end of 2022, um, rent in Pasadena is supposed to go up another $200 to $50 to $300 a month. And so that's huge. That's huge for families who are making minimum wage. That's huge for uh, millennials that are in our community that are either not going to college or have gone to college but can't find a job or they're, they're starting at the bottom of the totem pole. That's huge for uh, Gen Z's moving out of their parents' house. That's huge for seniors who are on a fixed income. And so that's things that we have to look at. And that's that's used for all of our gaps who just all of our people who live normal lives, who, who work normal jobs, who are not millionaires and who, who don't make the six figures that plus figures. And so um, that two hundred and fifty dollars plays a big part in all of our lives, including myself. And so I'm a renter myself. I rent a one bedroom apartment in Pasadena. And I have other bills as well that I have to pay. And so, you know, budgeting does come into that, but it plays effect. That $200, $250 will affect me as well. And so we have to find a cap uh, and a way to uh, help mobilize this rent control. And it's nothing, and I have to say this, it's nothing against landlords. I understand, you know, landlords save their money to be able to buy property like this and make investments like this as well. But this also is a human rights situation. This is also a human rights crisis that we're having more people that we've ever seen before that are homeless now, that are losing their jobs. And so, you know, it's bigger than, you know, the place that they live. This is something that we have to do. And if we don't do something about it, then we're going to see more homeless people on our streets. And so I think, you no, know, rent control is number one for me. But then I also think, uh, I mean, and you've seen it around the city and you've seen discussions around the city about it. Well, we have to start changing the city charter to allow our churches to build affordable housing units on their lots. Our churches want to build affordable housing units on their lots. And I think it, it goes two ways, right? Number one, it helps with housing. Number two, it helps with economic development. 
Because anytime we're building, number one, that's more jobs when we're actually doing construction. And then number two is economic development because it's more jobs when it's actually built because you have to have somebody to upkeep it. You have to have people to upkeep it. You have to have staff to run it and everything else. So it's not only building in our housing development part in Pasadena, but it's also building in our economic development parts of Pasadena as well. Something that, you know, I have to do more research on as well. But I had a friend who's applying and I won't say his name because he's still in the middle of applying, but he's applying for um, some condos in Pasadena to actually be able to like affordable condos where you can actually go and own them. But, you know, and there, I guess for 30 years, he have to pay over like six hundred thousand dollars. And then after the 30 years, he pays the $600,000. He still owes the city $300,000. So is that affordable or is that handcuffs? You know, is that something that we're really working to help people to buy? Because after that 30 years, he doesn't spend paying $600,000 for that condo. He has to pay, spend another 15 years to pay off another 3000 I mean, 300000 So uh, to me, that's slavery. To me, that's bondage. And so we have to find ways in our city to actually help sustain affordability here. But then also, it's not just about housing. It's not just about economic development, but it also goes into our school system as well, because the more people that we see that moves away from our city, the more students we we see leave our city and the more schools we see shut down. And so I think that there's other areas that we have to look around and we have to look at the broad picture and not just one focus, because if we just stay on one focus of it, then we'll just stay on that scope. But it's bigger than that. Just one scope. It's other areas that we see that plays a part in this as well. I think that dovetails really well into my next question. But before I do that, you know, I was looking at some economic data and this is my day job. So forgive me for it. But this is a home appreciation chart and it's showing that year over year, it's expected to spike to 14.5%. And that's supposed to drop down to, you know, in 2023, it's supposed to get down to 4.8%. I'm very fortunate to own my home. And the house next to to mine recently sold for 25% more than it did last year. And I mean, how can you justify and explain to somebody that they have to pay 25% more one year versus the next year. So I think the, the approach of, it's not just one thing, it's not just rent control, it's not just building on church lots, it's it's all these things. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think also, I mean, let's be honest, who doesn't wanna own their own house, right? Who doesn't, at the end of the day, who doesn't wanna own their own house? The, the thing is that there, there are people who are in better positions than other people to actually do so. Right. But my question also is this. My question is this. Those same people who own houses now who've been in their homes 10 plus years, maybe five plus years. Can you actually afford the same house that you bought five years, 10 years ago? Can you afford that today? And so I think that there's questions that we have to continue to ask ourselves to to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Because, look, I tell somebody the other day, look, I want to buy here, too. I want to live. I, like, I don't just want to live here and just rent my own time, my entire life. I'm not going to be a renter my entire life. Like, there's going to be some time in my life where I'm like, OK, I'm ready to buy. It's time for me to buy. And my hope and my dream is that I'll be able to buy here in Pasadena 
And so, I mean, any any renter you talk to, most renters don't want to just rent their whole lives. Sometime, some point in their lives, they want to slow down and buy a property whenever they can. But my thing is, let's have that conversation so that they will be able to do that when the time comes. So your district is really diverse. You have parts of Old Pasadena and with the Lincoln Parsons Project, a project that's costing hundreds of millions of dollars. And then less than a mile and a half away, you have low-income housing in Section 8. How do you view this inequality and how can we reduce some of this divide? I think, number one, when I look at economic development, I think we have to look at more jobs. We have to look at better paying jobs. Um, and, And what I look at, and I know my approach is different than other people's approach, and I appreciate that. So first things first is I think, number one, I think the city has to start looking at people that live in the city and own businesses in the city for to contract out things before we go outside of the city. And I think that's number one. I think we have to start learning how to recycle our dollars back into our city, meaning that the people who work here, who own businesses and the people who actually own businesses here get the first dibs in our contracts before any other person. I think that's very huge. I think that's big. The second thing I'll say in regards to development is I believe that my focus is that any development that happens in Pasadena, I would like to see at least 50% of the people who are hired for those development be Pasadena people, be people who live here in Pasadena. And I think it goes back to prevention work, right? Preventing crimes. I think it goes back to economic development as well, because we can argue the fact, well, maybe they don't know how to do it, or maybe we're not hiring them because they don't have the expertise. Well, how about we start training them? How about we put more money in tra- into training these individuals, like put more money into the, the apprenticeship program at Flint Ridge, who actually trains individuals to do construction and other type of apprenticeship work, right? And if we put more money into that, then we can actually say, yo, we have people in the city of Pasadena who's very who's very capable of doing these jobs as well. And so I think that the, that's the, the bridge that we have to start developing in economic development is that we have to start having money that is recycled here, that comes from here, but it, it actually recycled back here. The next thing I'll say in regards to having a multi-million dollar con- um, building project right next to (laughs) right down the street from Section 8 and uh, low income housing is one thing I found is people typically go where the money is. And so just because low income houses is around a place around a place or Section 8 housing is around a community, um, what I found out is that it does not lower the value of that community. Case in point, the White House is in the middle of a ghetto. USC is in the middle of a ghetto. Right. And so I think that at that point, we have to stop looking at it as, oh, this is one cost against another cost. And I think we it goes back to us viewing one Pasadena is that this is not a separate. We have to stop separating the 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 divide between different areas and geographical areas. And we have to stop separating the divide between how much you make in a year, or how much your property costs or how much money you have in the bank and stuff like that. And we start looking at it together as one Pasadena, meaning that your problems are my problems. You know, you're my neighbor. And then we have to go back to the village approach. Right. And, and and being one Pasadena, seeing that, look, this is a way that we can leverage our city. But ultimately, for me, economic development has to do with recycling our dollars back into our city. I think we all want our communities to be successful economically. 
people that have opportunities are much more likely to improve the conditions of our neighborhoods. Do you think that the city does enough to support and promote people, especially people of color, to start or grow their own businesses? No. <laughs> no. I mean, not even just people of color, anybody. I don't think we do a great job at it. I think, you know, we do a great job at promoting, uh, what is that fair that was just at, it was a uh, farmer's market. We do great at promoting farmer market, right? But most farmer's market don't even come from Pasadena. It's people that's outside of where we are, outside of, of, of here. They come from from the Valley and they come from uh, San Bernardino and they come from Palmdale, all those other areas to just be able to sell here. Right. So it's something that we have unique that is here. And and if we didn't have it and if it wasn't unique, then people wouldn't try to sell here. Right. So I do think that one thing I do say, I would say is that the community has done a great job in the last two years as building platforms for itself to be able to support and help businesses, small businesses of colors thrive, meaning that we see more now than ever pop up shops going on throughout our city, um, markets going on throughout our city, community based markets that are going on throughout our city to support these these um, businesses, small businesses of color. But I do think that the city has to do a better job in promoting this. And I'm not saying that, you know, the city has to say, hey, you know, there's another marketplace going on. But what I'm at, what I am saying is that maybe you should put that those type of events on the, the city's social media or maybe you should put that type of events on the city's uh, website um, because there's ways to promote more ways than one to promote, you know, uh, businesses of color. And so I do think that we have to do a better job at that. Um, and that it goes back to, once again, economic development. It's multiple streams of income. And and I mean, most people who have small businesses have another job. Most people who are uh, at these uh, marketplace for their clothing line or for their candle line or for their smell good line, they have, you know, other other jobs. They have a job that they go to. So this is just extra income from them. So I do think we have to do a better job at promoting these uh, businesses, small businesses that come from our communities. Gentrification has become an increasingly large issue in some parts of our city. Uh, on one hand, we don't want to displace local businesses or residents, but we also need to keep investing or else these buildings will start falling apart. It's a very hard balance to try to. So how do you think we can raise up our native passing residents while also welcoming investment into the community? I think something we, we have to just accept this and it stuck with me and I will use it until I find something else to use. Uh, she said that we have to focus on beautifying our city rather than gentrifying our city. Because there is a difference. There's a difference rather than you wanting to come in and change up everything and rebuild and move stuff around than actually you wanting to, you know, change the foundation or paint it up or put more amenities in it and stuff like that. There's a difference in that. And so I think that we have to focus more on beautifying our communities and beautifying, beautifying our cities rather than gentrifying it. Because here's the thing, when gentrification happens, people move away. And when people move away, they go to another city and then the other city waits another 10 years, 20 years saying, okay, now we got to fix it because now we got other people who wasn't here before. And then they gentrify that city and then them people move away again. 
So gentrification only just pushes people out to move them to other areas for them to just move again. Gentrification does not cause uh, stability. It does not help stability. So I think if we focus more on beautifying our city and beautifying these neighborhoods and beautifying and, and pushing the community in ways that they can actually support their own community to help uplift them, then I think those are ways that we can better um, fit and create sustainability and longevity in our community. As we close out our conversation, in addition to all the other work that you do, you've written two children's books, The King in Me and The Queen in Me. Can you talk a little bit about these books and the lesson you wanted to teach children with them? So The King in Me and The Queen in Me, uh, they're both for affirmation books. And the subtitle is Affirmations Every Young King Should Know and Affirmations Every Young Queen Should Know. And it's for everybody. It's, it's universal. I've had literally adults uh, send me comments and, and uh, direct messages saying, look, man, we was reading this book to our son and we started crying ourselves and it wasn't even for us. But for me, it's really creating those affirmations to really affirm uh, children at a young age of who they are and what they were created to be, that they can be literally whoever they want to be. And so, you know, people ask me why children's book, like why you couldn't write a novel or why you didn't want to write, you know, books for teenagers or adults. I do have some adults books, adult books that are coming down the line, but I wanted to stick to children because I think children, you have to start them at a young age to really start believing in themselves um, and believing in the work that they do. And a lot of people really don't work with young people, working with teenagers, working with kids. A lot of adults really don't understand the negative influences, but also the negative mindsets that kids fight every single day doubting themselves, saying they can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't want to do it. This is not, this is too much for me. Or even seeing the affirmations that our community project on our kid because they might act out because they don't know something and we call them bad or we say something is wrong with them or this person needs help. And so we put these stigmas on our kids at a young age. And so I really wrote this book to really affirm these two books to affirm our kids and give them affirmations that can really stick to them and that they can really understand at a young age that even if somebody doesn't know how to pronounce their name, you help them to pronounce your name. You don't just let them call you whatever they want to call you because they don't know how to pronounce it. You help them pronounce it. And you give them that, you know, and it's not only helping you, but it's helping them as well. And so, you know, that's the re the real reason why I wrote that book is just to really, you know, affirm our young people at the place that they are right now. Uh, one can argue that your district, District 3, is one of the most important, not only because it houses City Hall in North uh, Old Pasadena, but it also includes parts of Central Pasadena and neighborhoods like the one that Jackie Robinson grew up in. What are your favorite parts of District 3? And what places do you recommend people visit? Mm, that's an interesting question. My favorite part of District 3 has to be Jackie Robinson Center and Jackie Robinson Park. And the reason why I say that is because I've been around those neighborhoods most. Um, and I've seen the effects of it. I've seen the good part about it. And I've seen the bad part about it as well. But at the end of the day, when when people go to these areas, it's, it's one big community. 
I used to work at the Jackie Robinson Center and it used to be a whole lot of elderly people there, like just elderly support. And they come and they just hang out all day long because they retired, don't have nothing else to do. And the wisdom that I, I, I used to gain from them and the wisdom that I got from them um, just from being there and being present on things that they used to do and and stuff that they used to be a part of and um, just gaining wisdom from them. Um, I know it's not uh, too much of that anymore, but that's just that's my favorite part of District Three is is Jackie Robinson Park and Jackie Robinson Center. Um, knowing the work that we've done and the work that was done before me to to do it as well. But then not only that, but the Black History Parade ends there every year, and so you know it happens it happens in that part, which brings communities together and bring our neighborhoods together, and that's something about you know. Uh, District 3 as well with the Latino Heritage Parade. The Latino Heritage Parades go through District 3 as well. And so that's a beautiful part as well. But I think one of my favorite places to look at in District 3 is our city hall. I think, I mean, I've been to 31 states and we have the best city hall that I've seen. My second favorite is uh, Philadelphia City Hall. But we have the best city hall that I've seen. And it's, I mean, you can see it because almost everybody's wedding pictures is at city hall and almost everybody's uh, Christmas pictures in, is in, in front of that big old Christmas tree. And so we've seen it over and over again. But I would commission people to visit places that people tell you not to visit. Visit those places that might not have a lot of traffic because those are the places that are rich in history. Those are the places that are are rich in community. And then even if you don't visit these places, I commission people to talk to to neighbors. If you're walking down the street, just say hi to somebody. Talk to them. Start a conversation. Hey, where do you live at? Or where are you from? Or how long have you been here? You know, and then I think when we start to have those conversations, see that we are all more in line or aligned with each other than we are separated. So I think, you know, for me, it's just really commissioning people to have those conversations with their neighbors, because at the end of the day, we have to go back to being a village. Meaning for me, you know, I know people, if somebody coming knocking on my door and I'm not here, my neighbor is quick to tell me, hey, is somebody knocking on your door? I know you weren't here, but they look like this and the other. And that's a village. That's something that we, we, we help each other with, right? If you go out of town and your neighbors know you out of town, your neighbors is looking out for your house while you're away. And so we have to go back to that part of being a, a village and knowing who our neighbors are and, and connecting with our neighbors in our city. Well, this question follows perfectly, which is you and I come from different backgrounds. Um, we have different jobs and live in different parts of Pasadena. But we are both boldly proud of our city. And I'm someone that wasn't born here, but someone that moved here uh, almost 12 years ago. How can people like you and I bridge some of our differences and work together to make our city a better place to live and work? That's an amazing question. I think, number one, we have to start having communication with each district. Typically, we leave these groups, say, hey, y'all talk to y'all district and we're going to talk to our district. Y'all talk to our y'all city manager, I mean, your city council, and we're going to talk to our city council. But I think we really have to start bridging the gaps to understand that at the end of the day, a lot of our our, our city is the same. Uh, we do have some differences. We, we definitely do. 
But at the end of the day, this is the same great city that people chose to live in. And and we decided to work here. We decided to live here. We decided to grow up here. And so I think we really have to look at each other and and see that in, in more ways than one, we have some of the same reasons to be here. But then I also think that, you know, we have to include ourselves, other uh, other people's fights, even though we might not go through the same thing. It still affects Pasadena. My fight might be different than your fight. But at the end of the day, both of our fights still include Pasadena and it affects Pasadena. And so um, that's what we have to look at is that, you know, all of our neighborhoods, whether it's good or bad, it still affects the scope of Pasadena. And so, you know, that's that's something that I would say is that we, we just really have to go beyond our mindset, go beyond our neighborhood, go beyond our home and really get to know people, get to know our neighbors, get to and reach out to them. I mean, the real reason that I'm on this podcast is because you've reached out to me. Right. And we have to start reaching out to people more. I mean, social media does a great job at it. You know, we can connect with all kinds of people and see what the needs are and what the solutions are, what the problems are. But we have to start connecting more with our community members. And I think that's really how we bridge the gap, because there's really been a, a divide not only with um, geographical areas, but there's been a divide between the old and the young as well. And so we have to bridge those gaps together. And something that I always say is Pasadena does, uh, and, and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, hopefully I don't, but Pasadena does a very good job at recycling leadership. We use the same leaders over and over again. Once you get into this position, we want to reuse you. We want to take you for city council to the mayor. And then we once you once you're not mayor no more, then we want to use you in commission and advisory boards and all this kind of stuff. And it doesn't give room for other people to go into those those seats. It doesn't give room for other leaders who will be effective to help push our city to the next level. It doesn't give leaders room or young leaders or, or middle-aged leaders room <laughs> to grow into those seats. So I think we have to do a better job at, at bridging the gaps between the old and the young in leadership that, you know, you don't have to just be there forever to make a, a standpoint, but I think we have to do a better job at, at passing the baton as well. When you think about the next five years, the next 10 years and beyond, what do you envision for Pasadena's future and what role do you see yourself playing in it? When I think about the next five to 10 years, I think about a more beautified city, um, which our city is already beautified, beautiful, definitely. But I think a a more of a beautified city, but also a more city that focuses on unity and really understanding that a lot of our problems, like I said before, are the same. I see a city that is focused on prevention work. I see a city that is focused on uh, lowering our crime rates, not only our crime rates, but lowering our homeless rates by not pushing homeless people away, but actually helping them to find somewhere to live. I see a city that is focused on community health meaning mental health services that's not just for something it's not just something for us to uh, help our homeless population find somewhere to live but it's also something for us to help them sustain that living because you can be living on the street for so long with no bills and no responsibility and now you actually have responsibility so having that support to help our homeless population with that support or with that housing um, I see a Pasadena that is definitely working together to be 
to bridge the gaps between different different areas or different beliefs um, and working together. And then also see uh, a city that is uh, that has rent control. <laughs> I have a city, I see a city that uh, has built the trust between the community and this police department. Because I, th- I think everything that I mentioned is not something that we cannot do. It's something that we definitely can do if we really want it to happen. And so, you know, we we found money, even if they say we didn't have money, we found money to do and to go to certain things in the last three in the last three years. And so we can definitely find money again to to help sustain these programs um, and these opportunities. So, yeah. So final question is. How can people get involved in your campaign or the other work that you do in the community? Um, absolutely. To get involved in my campaign, you can go to brandonforpasadena.com. Very easy. Uh, <laughs> brandonforpasadena.com. And, you know, we're looking for, for everything from people to knock on doors to people to make uh, phone calls, um, people to to post on social media. Um, but then ultimately, once again, uh, as I always stated, you know, we're running a grassroots campaign. And so we definitely need uh, help with contributions and donors. And so if you definitely would like to donate or, or contribute or make a contribution to our campaign, understand that 100 percent of the proceeds I mean, we all have no choice, but 100 percent of the proceeds are going to um, helping get our campaign out there and get the word out there and letting people know all about our campaign. And I know when people talk about, you know, this campaign and always say, you know, Brandon, how is you and your campaign? And I always switch it up because this I don't consider this to be my campaign. I consider this to be our campaign that, you know, I think real change comes from working together. And, and clearing the divide and pushing past the divide. And so this is not my campaign. This is our campaign. This is what we want to see in our city. And so um, I'm just a voice to to help make it happen. And so, yeah, those are the ways that you can definitely be a part. Go to brandonforpasadena.com and all the information is on there, how to support, how to be there, how to donate. Um, I definitely have to push the donations, <laughs> especially going into next year. And so uh, please, if you can uh, help us in those ways, other ways to support Brandon besides campaign is you can go to my side website. I guess I can call it a side website now since I have the other one. Um, and it's bdlamar.org. And you find everything that I've done in the community. You find my books there. You find my clothing line there. You find my jury line there. You find everything about me there. And then on social media, I'm Brandon Dante Lamar. And on Instagram, I am BD Lamar. Brandon, thank you very much for being such a great part of Pasadena. The work that you're doing continues your grandmother's legacy. And I know that she'd be really proud of you. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, man. It's It's been a pleasure. It's literally been a pleasure. You've asked me questions. Nobody else has asked me. So it's definitely been a pleasure to be here and uh, to be a part of this podcast with you. Again, my many thanks to Brandon for coming on the show. If you're interested in learning more about Brandon and getting involved with his campaign, please visit brandonforpasadena.com or bdlamar.org and follow him on Facebook and Instagram. One unfair criticism that we hear regularly is that younger people are not educated about or engaged enough in our communities and politics. 
but my conversation with Brandon is yet another example that there is a talented and highly engaged group of activists that are preparing to lead our city. And because of this, I remain hopeful about our future. This episode is number 21 and the last for 2021. Recently, I've only posted one episode per month due to the demands of work and family, but I have several episodes already in the works for 2022, and I'm really excited about the podcast future. So thank you for listening. And until next time, please remember to stay well, stay positive, and as always, see you around town.